Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Good morning. If you join me in the book of John chapter 18. John chapter 18. While you're turning there, I'm going to read quickly from the book of Isaiah, verse 53. Isaiah says there about the coming Messiah, Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. The reason that I wanted to read that passage of Scripture specifically is because the one thing we have in common is the ours and the we's and the us's in this passage of Scripture. When it comes to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and healing us from every spiritual consequence that sin has caused in our life, Jesus Christ has brought us into a common community together. There is none righteous. No, not one. Jesus died for every sin. Every sin. And so the one thing that brings us together, that binds us together, is the collective interest in that we stand forgiven by Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished for us on the cross. The, first, the verse just prior to where I started reading, Isaiah 53 verse, three, verse 6 says, And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Today is what Christians have called Palm Sunday for 2,000 years. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, heralded as the King of the Jews. All four Gospels give record to His triumphal entry. Some add different details and descriptions to give us a complete story, but we know that just shortly after the raising of Lazarus, all of those outsiders who were on their way to Jerusalem from the surrounding regions and all around the world for Passover this particular year had been walking alongside Jesus' party. And as they come nearer and nearer to Jerusalem, the emotions swell And prophecies begin to be completed one at a time as Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies from Zechariah and riding on a colt. And uh, on and on we go because the Old Testament is filled with hundred prophecies of what that day would be like. And so when Jesus is getting closer to uh, Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, Matthew actually uses a word. It says that the people were moved Now, this is a very interesting word because in Greek, it's the word seismos, which is where we get our word seismograph or seismic reader, which actually measures earthquakes. So when he's talking here about being moved, he's not talking about emotionally. He's talking about that the whole community was actually stirred, shaking the ground. There was such a a movement of the people. It was like an earthquake where Jesus was walking. There were so many people and throngs about Jesus there. But try to remember a couple of things, okay? It's very important. We talk about how did the crowds turn so quickly, and the truth of the matter is they didn't. Everyone who had been walking with Jesus along the road, everyone who were outsiders had been hearing Jesus, most of his ministry was outside of Jerusalem center. He had been healing people and speaking to people and raising people from the dead. And he had been teaching people with authority. And people loved Jesus. They wanted to be around Jesus. They didn't understand him, but they knew this. He was different than Jerusalem. He was different than the religious leaders. And so when Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem, all of the outsiders recognized 
the fulfillment of prophecy. And they were calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the one sent from God, the son of David. He will be the one to sit on the throne of Israel. Well, guess who this threatens? All of the insiders. And now a week is going to go by, and Jesus is settling into Jerusalem. Things get not quite back to normal, but the insiders have taken over. And they've had an entire week with Jesus now inside the city. This is about the same time that Judas betrays Jesus, and now we are moving through Palm Sunday, if we can do that very quickly. We're moving through Palm Sunday up until the end of this coming week is where we're going to start today. Now know this, there are so many details about the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus. I cannot possibly camp out and give all of just the facts. It would take us weeks and weeks and weeks in order to be able to accomplish all of that. Jesus enters into Jerusalem offering peace, but the people are interested in anything but. So I want to take a moment, and over the last few weeks, and I don't say this in any sort of derogatory way, but, but I hear, uh, I, I, we're going to do the creed again today. This is what, what we're in the middle of, of going through uh, the Apostles' Creed. And, and so I would like for you to go ahead and stand with me, if you will. The number one question that I keep hearing is, number one, uh, you know, for those who are not from our church, uh, are very familiar with this sort of thing. People who are in our church didn't know what quite to make of it. Uh, and so that's okay. That's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but listen, when we say the Holy Catholic Church... All right, I keep hearing, nobody's asked me specifically. Everybody has told me that they've been asked by somebody else. Listen, if you have a question, you can come and talk to me, all right? But the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic just means universal. It means the one church of Jesus Christ. We're not saying the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Don't misunderstand that and don't feel bad that we say the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is a lot older than the Roman Catholic Church, all right? We are a part of the one body of Jesus Christ and we are not ashamed to say so, all right? So we're going to, are we going to do that? Okay. We're going to, you just, we, we know how to do this now, right? And I promise we won't do this forever, uh, but we want to make sure that this gets into our DNA a little bit. All right. Just read with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So the phrase that we're on today is suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Now the phrase under the creed deals with the facts of Jesus' death. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. This cannot be argued historically. This is a fact about the death of Jesus Christ that is inarguable. This means that he was killed in the crucifixion, that he died physically. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He didn't pass from one state to another. He died. And he was buried in a rich man's tomb. And all of this, all of this sadly, is easily explained in outside Christian writings, not just found within Scripture. But to me, it is a shame that we live in a day where we have to say, if you don't believe the Bible, at least believe the historians. But that is where we live. 
And so, lest we be convinced of only using our materials to back up our beliefs, I want you to understand that this is a well-documented proof. Jesus Christ lived, Jesus Christ died, was buried in a rich man's tomb, and historically, we don't know what to do with it, but He rose again. But I don't want to spend our time just on the facts. We've got to go... We've got to go deeper than the facts. We've got to go deeper than knowing. We have to go down into the believing. And why do we believe? So I want to spend our time under the facts, talking about the truth of what's occurring in the death of Jesus, namely the death of Christ that reconciles us to God and creates a covenant community that we get to enjoy and to share in. The things that put us on the same, in the same place for the same cause. So we're going to look at John chapter 18, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now this is interesting because not long ago, Jesus looked at Peter and he said, who do men say do I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Isaiah, some say you're one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not made you aware of this, but the Father. Right? Well, this is the same thing with Pilate. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you asking me this? Or somebody outside of you asking you this? Because Jesus is testing Pilate in this moment. Is this your conclusion? Has spirit, has, has flesh and blood revealed this to you? Or are you recognizing something in this moment? Well, Pilate, oblivious, blazes right through it. So the evening gets started with the high priest. Uh, very quickly, we're going to run through some of these details, but... The high priest sends, Caiaphas sends a group of soldiers to the garden where Jesus and his disciples are praying. And uh, as they get there, Judas is uh, uh, already sent out to betray Jesus. And G Judas knew where Jesus was going to be. And so he lets Caiaphas and all the soldiers know this is Jesus' favorite praying spot if we can get there at a certain time, I can almost guarantee you Jesus will be there. Well, yes, it's going to be dark. We don't really know Jesus. He's not been around much. How will we know which one is Him? He will be the one that I walk up to and kiss. So when the cohort got there, they were expecting a fight. They had their swords probably drawn. And when they call out for Jesus' name, Jesus very willingly... Very willingly. It's, it's not like Spartacus, where they say, which one of you is Spartacus? And every man says, I am Spartacus, right? Nobody is protecting Jesus at this moment. Jesus doesn't hide behind all of these men. He doesn't hide behind swords. They say, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus immediately speaks out and says, I'm Jesus. And they get ready for battle. This great Roman army against a few fishermen and some tax collectors. That's genius. So Peter pulled out his sword. And uh, I think, I don't know, I just like the picture of 
everybody else is quiet and running their other direction. And Peter pulls out this sword and is charging, going, ah, all by himself, right? He knows they're going to win because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter has no doubt that they're going to win. And so Peter takes this big clunky sword. Now, this isn't a fishing net that like he's used to. Remember, Peter is not a soldier. He runs his mouth like a soldier, but he's not a soldier. And he goes, so Malchus, one of the things we learn, all four accounts of the Gospels give us more details about this man. We actually find out that his name is Malchus. Malchus actually means son of the priest, or the uh, servant of the priest. And so Malchus may not have been his name, it may have been his title. But Malchus was probably the most powerful man in the group. He was probably the personal assistant to Caiaphas himself, who was at home at this time. Malchus was the spokesman, the one who was leading the charge. Now, if, if Jesus had a counterpart in the skirmish, it would have been the high priest. So, who does Peter consider himself to be? The chief protector, just like Malchus is going to be. So, who does Peter charge after? The man in control to, in order to protect Jesus. Now remember, this big clunky sword, Peter ain't used to. If you think that he's as detailed to say, I know what I'll do, I'll lop off his right ear. Perfect precision. No, no, no. Listen, Peter is going for the throat, right? He's going for the throat, but he's not good enough with the sword, so he cuts off Malchus's right ear. And I know what Malchus is thinking. Really? That's my good ear. Falls to the dirt. Jesus is so close to the man in charge that it says that Jesus took his ear and healed him. Put his ear back on. Now, I don't know if he blew it off first. I don't know if he took the ear that was in the dirt and put it in his pocket, put it in a souvenir. Let me just heal you a brand new one. We won't get through all of this. You won't have a scarf. I just heal you another. I don't know if Malchus ended up with three ears or Jesus just took the one and sealed it back up. I'm not sure. They're all miraculous, right? The point is, Jesus looked at Peter and said, we ain't going to win with a sword. If you live by the sword, eventually... You're going to die by the sword. This is not the way of the kingdom, he tells Peter. Jesus actually said, you can go over, you can look. Jesus actually said to him, Peter, do you not know that I can pray? I love that. It's one of the greatest things I think Jesus says to Peter. Peter, put your sword up. Do you not know that I can pray? And if I prayed, the Father would send legions of angels to deliver me. Jesus recognizes right there. We're beginning to see a sign that although Jesus suffered, Jesus suffered willingly. Jesus is the first one to speak up. Jesus is the one who says, I've got to go into the garden. That's where they're going to come to arrest me. Jesus, Jesus, every step of the way, Jesus keeps setting himself up to be taken. Do you not know that prophecy has to be fulfilled here, Peter? Well, then Pilate said to Jesus, So, you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world in order to bear witness to the truth. And then the words of Pilate. What is truth? What is truth? After Pilate said this, he went outside back to the Jews and he told them, hey, I find no, no fault with this man. Find no fault with this man. <laughs> he said, but you have a custom, and the custom is at this time of the year at the Passover, I will free. I don't know where the, exactly the custom comes from. It may be that just like the angel passed over the homes, freeing them from death, that to celebrate that every year, 
it was custom and could, it doesn't mean it always happened, but could happen that the people could have any one of the prisoners released. And so Pilate finds a loophole. Okay, I find no fault in him, but let's just say he's guilty. You want me to release him back to you. I will make an accusation against him. You know, I'll declare against him, but we'll free him. And they said, no, 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 no. We want Barabbas. Now listen, here's something you need to know about Barabbas. Again, if you only read it from one account, you might miss it. All four accounts give us different details about Barabbas. We find out that Barabbas is a thief. Many of the people in the crowd he had stolen from. It also says that he was an insurrectionist. He created riots wherever he would go. He would take good people and create a mob mentality out of them against the religious leaders. Not only that, but one of the Gospels tells us that he was a murderer. And they look at Pilate and said, we would rather have Barabbas at large than to have Jesus delivered. So, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That is, would have taken whips and skinned his back from its flesh. And then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, pierced his brow. They put this purple robe on his back to make fun of him. Now he has a crown. Now he has a robe. They came up to him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with rods, supposedly, I guess, pretending they were scepters that a king would hold. Pilate went out again and he said, Look at all the damage that we've done. I'm bringing, I find no guilt in him, but just so that your sadism could be released, look, look what he looks like. You can't even tell what he looks like. The scripture says you wouldn't even be able to recognize him as a man. So, here he is. Let's just call it done. And they said, no, no, no. Crucify him. I mean, it's a whole nother level. Jesus haven't, hasn't even started carrying a cross yet. By the time we get here, he's already been whipped twice. Now here, his back is laid open with the types of whips that grab into the flesh and pull it away. Most likely, if Jesus would have turned backwards, you would have seen his intestines. And now his blood is clotting on this purple cloak. Blood running in his eyes from the crown of thorns. And Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter, didn't open his mouth. And at any moment through this, he would have looked at us and said, Somebody stop this madness! Jesus would have said, Do you not know that I can pray? I can stop this at any moment. And Jesus never opens his mouth. And so Pilate looks at Jesus when they said, crucify him, crucify him. He looks, he says, say something, Jesus. And Jesus said, not a word. He said, do you not understand that I have life and death in my hands for you? Say something. Jesus said, you have no authority, but such is given to you from heaven. So, Pilate turned and said, Behold the man. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then probably the worst thing the Jew, Jewish leaders could have said was, Let his blood be upon our heads and our children's. Pilate said, Take him yourself. You crucify him. I don't find any guilt in him. You said, we have a law. According to law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. He calls himself the king. Jesus didn't do that, but we know that he was. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters. He said, listen, I, I need some help. I, you, you're going to have to bail me out of this dilemma. So he goes back out to the Jews, and the Jews say... If you release Jesus, this was the cinch. If you release Jesus, 
you are no friend to Caesar. Now listen, here's some things you need to know. In our, in our Sunday school storytelling, we don't do a whole lot of study of the Caesars. We don't do a lot of Roman history studies. We shouldn't. It's not important. So when we hear the stories of Easter, Palm Sunday, those sorts of... We talk about the different leaders of Jerusalem, and we high have them on this high pedestal. But that is absolutely not the case. Pilate was a nobody. He was a nothing, right? He was the governor of the smallest, most unworthy community in the entire Roman Empire. So when you think about Pilate, don't think of him as the president of the United States in a world government. You need to think of Pilate as the governor of North Dakota, he, they had so little respect for Pilate. He's not a Jew. He was shipped in from the city center and put into an outpost, hoping maybe to even drive him completely away. Pilate's number one ambition was to work his way back up, to become somebody, to be something. And one of the ways, the only, he had two responsibilities in Jerusalem. Number one was to make sure that people paid their taxes. And number two, to make sure they do not revolt against the Romans. He couldn't do either, even in podunk Jerusalem. This is, and the Jews knew it. They knew that they had him right here. That's why they said, if you release Jesus, wonder what Caesar will find out. You can't even, look at this man, you can't even deal with this. The Jews hated Caesar. Hated Caesar. And here, they're defending him. Just like they defended Barabbas. Apparently, they were more threatened by Jesus than they were Caesar. Gospels are all different perspectives of the same event. They're all true, just different details. But what we see here is just a microcosm of the abuse that Jesus endures under Pilate. In Isaiah chapter 50, the second part of verse 6, it says that they pull the beard out of Jesus' face. It tells us that they spat on him, that they made fun of him. That they mocked him. They belittled him. They did everything possible to put him to open shame. They stripped him. All of our pictures has Jesus with a sash around his waist. That's not stripped. Jesus was stripped and made to look like an absolute fool. But remember this. Before you think of all poor pitiful Jesus, do you not know that he could pray? He's treated like he was less than an animal so that he could fulfill every promise that goes all the way back to Genesis. Then he's sent to Herod for a little while because Pilate still don't want to deal with him. Now, Herod was a party boy, and when Jesus gets to Herod, Herod is, he's heard all about Jesus before, and he says, why don't you conjure up some miracles? I would love to entertain my guests for a little while that's in from out of town. Of course, Jesus refuses, and so Herod has him beaten again, sent back to Pilate. Now remember, all of this, we haven't even gotten to the crucifixion yet. Most men that would have been treated this way would have already been dead. The beating that Jesus endured before He was to carry His cross was so severe that when the time came to carry His cross, He couldn't carry it. So they pulled a man out of the crowd, Simon, Cyrene, to carry the cross for Jesus to Golgotha. And then they would lay Jesus down and they would drive nails through his hands and his feet. Now, a couple months ago, we were studying Jonah. I know that just seems like yesterday. But we talked about how gr gruesome and cruel the Assyrians were. 
Well, this was, uh, this was somewhere 500, 600 years after the Assyrians. There were several other world leaders by the time we get to the Romans, Greece being one, but they really weren't as cruel as many of the other ones. But the Romans had learned and they had taken these weapons and they had magnified them. They had taken cruelty and magnified it. And the Assyrians, we talked about this when we were talking about Jonah, how they would take these sharp spikes and stick them on the side of the road and just stick people on top of them. And these spikes would go up into their chest and it would not kill them because it wouldn't penetrate any vital organs until days had gone by and their bodies would shrink down these poles until finally there would be an organ that would be pierced and they would die. And then they would leave them there, miles of these people, most of them innocent, just as a testimony of how cruel they really were. This is a terrible way to die. But the Romans had learned about it, and the Romans had devised a more painful treatment of that particular death. It's called crucifixion. It's the same regarding exposure, but it is so much more horrific concerning pain. And so some of the lesser men who would be accused and have to face crucifixion to death, they would simply create a landing for them to stand on and then they would rope their arms to this cross and they would stand there days and days and days until exposure and birds and wild animals would eventually destroy them. But for those who had suffered like Jesus, they wanted to inflict the massive amount of pain that they possibly could. And so they would put nails into the palms, not into the hands, into the wrists. Otherwise it would rip right through all the sinew. So right into the bone there. And they would lap the feet and then put a nail right between the bone. And Jesus would be suspended there, either holding His weight with His wrists or pushing up His weight from his feet. When you push your weight up, you can take a breath, but you're supporting all of your weight on your feet. And so you would have to release it, and when you did, you would begin to drown on your own blood. And Jesus did this for hours. Saying things like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Saying things like, John, will you take care of my mama? <laughs> Before you feel too sorry for Jesus, you need to remember this. Do you not know that at any moment he could pray? The thief on the cross is all kinds of anxious. And Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, the Son of God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth. Breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and he becomes a living being. Not too long after, Adam rebels against God's word and falls into the curse of sin. And now, every generation from Adam experiences the sin nature. Jesus, by way of the, the Son of God, by way of the voice of God, meets with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden one day and says to them, I am going to send enmity between the serpent seed and the woman's seed. But one day, the woman's seed will win. And all of this in creation will begin the process of being restored. Now, I'm going to take all of the Old Testament and I'm going to really boil it down big time, okay? Everything from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is God working to real man back to Eden. Everything He does is to bring man back to the place where he can experience a relationship with Him in the garden, in the cool of the day, in a kingdom built for the glory of the Father. 
It's all he's ever done. It's all he's ever done. Why do we have the law to make life difficult? No, so that we'll be able to hear and know when Jesus comes. Why all the prophecies? So that we'll be ready. We'll be able to live holy lives so that when Jesus speaks, the Spirit bears witness to His Spirit. Why does God do everything that He does so that we will be ready to be reeled back in to a restored relationship with the Father? The only way to do that is to go through the cross. And Jesus knows this. Even before Adam takes a bite, the son knows what it's going to cost. Do you want to know why Jesus didn't pray for deliverance? Because he knows how satisfying a relationship with God the Father is. And he wants that for us. And for us, there's two ways to rebel against God. You can rebel against God by doing your own thing. By denouncing God, by living rebellious, by knowing what God says, or even not believing in God at all. The other way to rebel against God is is just to kind of live lazily the Christian life. Let me tell you something. I don't believe that that's possible. I don't think you can call yourself a nominal Christian. I don't think it exists. I mean, can you imagine calling yourself a Christian and disregarding the cross of Jesus Christ and what it cost Him? The cross wasn't a fixed moment. Everything God has done from the very first bite of the fruit, God has been working toward the cross. And everything that Jesus Christ has done since is for our generation to be reeled back into the kingdom. And for us to live like this belongs to us? What an insult that must be to the cross. I mean, I mean, I want you to think about everybody that we judge, every person that we experience that's a burden, everybody that we deal with that's a problem, everybody we deal with that's a stranger, and we walk by them, and God Himself is trying to reel back every human being in this world, and the people who have already been reeled back in are dismissing them. Do you not see how blasphemous that is to the cross when we don't share the hope that the cross secures for us with those who have not been reeled back in yet? Living this life like it's for us when Jesus died the worst possible death and could have escaped it, by the way, but didn't so that the people that we dismiss every day could be reeled back in. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2, Isaiah says, How long will you eat bread that doesn't satisfy you? And how long will you drink water that doesn't quench your thirst? The idea there is that there is this longing in us that we just can't seem to satisfy. We keep trying to find answers. We keep trying to find satisfaction, something that'll dull the pain that will mute the voices, something that will, that will bring contentment and hope and life to our life apart from God. And that restlessness, that longing, that desire for more is what leads us to every other fracture in our life. Listen, some of you, you don't have a marriage problem. You don't have a finance problem. You don't have an addiction problem. You don't have an anger problem. You have marriage symptoms, finance symptoms. You have addiction symptoms. You have anger symptoms. Those are not your issue. Your issue is your rebellion against the cross of Jesus Christ. That's your issue. If you put Jesus in His proper place, those symptoms are alleviated. Your disease is much bigger than your felt need. If you'll put Jesus Christ in the very center of your life and allow Him to dictate every thought, I'm telling you, most of our problems will fade away. But if you want to keep finding satisfaction in anything other than the cross of Christ, your symptoms are going to continue to exacerbate. Bigger and bigger and bigger.
I'm just going to, I'm, I, this is going to be a little judgmental. I do believe that it's true. I'm not, I'm not going to be very protective of how I say it. We have never experienced depression in our world like we experience it right now. We have never been more medicated than we are right now. We've never experienced more anxiety than we are right now. Suicide has never been at a higher rate in our country than it is right now. Let me tell you why. We have forgotten the cross of Jesus Christ. When all your problems all begin to melt into one big problem and you can't see a way out of it, it's because you can't see the cross from where you are. And, and you know why they can't see the cross from where we are? Because the people who've already been reeled back in have taken their eyes off Jesus. So the biggest issue is that Jesus Christ reconciles us back to the Father by way of the cross. The second issue is by being reconciled, it puts us into a community of faith where we are now we are now given the ministry of reconciliation. Who started the ministry of reconciliation? The cross of Jesus Christ started the ministry of reconciliation. We are now promoting that. You want to see what Jesus does? Jesus looks at tax collectors and redeems them. Jesus looks at prostitutes and redeems them. Jesus looks at the woman at the well who's been married five times and the man she's living with now is sex for rent. He restores her. Zacchaeus restores him. Eats with him that day. Jesus goes through life. What's He doing? He's hanging out with people that you and I avoid. That's what took Him to the cross. That's what keeps us off of it. You know, Paul, if, Paul, if, if Saul of Tarsus were alive today, he would be a general for ISIS. You know what Jesus does? Restores him. Reels him back to Eden. One after the other in the Old Testament. You got people like Lydia, who has a home in Thyatira and Philippi, the Paris and the New York of the ancient world. You know what he does? The great fashionista Lydia, every teenager is wearing her brand, reels her back into Eden. The Philippian jailer, who is a murderer, who is now a blue collar worker, keeping, jailer, uh, keep, keeping inmates in his own jail, who who puts Paul in stocks and bonds and wasn't commanded to, who tortures Paul and Silas and wasn't told to, who enjoys that. You know what Jesus does through Paul and Silas? Reels him back into Eden. Over and over and over throughout history, God has taken the worst of us and reeled us back. You know what God wants to do today? To take the worst of us and reel us back. And every one of us is a perfect example lest we forget who we used to be and who we would have become without the knowledge of the cross. Jesus is about reconciling fallen man back into the relationship with the Father. It's all He does. Demon-possessed slave girl, a eunuch, on and on and on. I would just ask you, I'm going to echo a 3,000-year-old prophecy. Are you not tired of trying to fix it yet? Trying to eat bread that's never going to satisfy you? Trying to drink things that will never satisfy your thirst? <sighs> hmm. So, let me give you the so that. Okay? In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, it's overseers to care for the church of God. And here's, here's the part you can highlight, verse 28, which He obtained, the church which He obtained through the blood of His cross. See, boom, there we are. Now we are a community of faith. We are the continuation of the cross ministry of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Now listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, right? And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of the Lord in the same sentence with the cross? Listen, number one, Jesus, it says, the Old Testament says, that it pleased the Father to crush His Son. So that you and I could be restored, reeled back into His kingdom. The joy of the Lord, satisfying the wrath of God concerning sin. The joy of the Lord. Jesus endured the cross knowing that He was satisfying your consequences spiritually. That's why Jesus didn't pray. If Jesus would have relieved Himself, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus knew it. If it wasn't Him, it was nothing. And the glory of God is worth it. Number two, Jesus also knew that this was momentary. In not too long from now, I'm going to be resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father. Restored back to my proper place in the kingdom. And number three, you. You are the joy that was before Him. Knowing that your salvation pleased the Father and knowing that a million times over and over and over the joy that the Father experiences when every one of us claim the cross of Christ as our own. The joy that comes to the face of the Father by your salvation was worth it for Jesus. In fact, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, as Saul of Tarsus is talking about his conversion, he says this, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me. When the time came that you moved from rebel to God passing in front of you, it pleased God at that moment to offer you the free gift of salvation. And every time that we have an opportunity to walk by people, we ought to be being ministers of reconciliation. So this morning, I just want to encourage you how important Suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried, really is for us. Because if it's not for those things, none of the rest of it matters. There is no relationship apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, knowing what was coming, said, Father, let this cup pass from me. If you think Jesus wanted to experience this, or that Jesus absolved His flesh from the feelings of the cross, you'd be sadly mistaken. Jesus' anxiety was through the roof. So much so that his, his sweat become drops of blood as the anxiety was mounting. And He cries in that moment. He cries it out and He says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And I know that the Christian life has a lot of anxiety attached to it. I know God is calling us out of our comfort zone. It's part of what it takes to get reeled back into the kingdom. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You just trust me. You follow me back to the kingdom. You're closer than you've ever been before. Follow me back to the kingdom, back to a restored Eden, back, back to the place where we are experiencing the very presence of the Father every day. Let's go back to that place together and may we take as many people with us as we possibly can. Lord, we thank you for freedom that we find in Christ. But Lord, we pray the mandate that is before us is heavy. So now may we take up our cross daily and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, 
send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.